0: Welcome to the SaaS Ramp podcast. I'm your host, Podcast Pete. On with me today, awesome guest. We have Jason Reichel, CRO at TrustLayer.io. Welcome to the show, Jason. Hello, Pete. I like that. Podcast
1: Pete. That's, that's uh, fun.
0: <laughs> do you have a, you 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 run one of these. So like you've got a podcast in the past, you've got a new thing that we can talk about coming out starting next week that I'll definitely jump on at least for that first one. I saw the opening on my calendar. So do you yep. do you have like an alter
1: ego name? I I do not. If I get too drunk, my friends call me Jason Beichel, which is the evil version of me. So I guess that might be what I am on the podcast.
0: Oh my gosh, I love that. I tell my daughter a story. She's seven. She's Cosette. And then we'll do Momet stories, which is her alter ego. And like, Momet can fly, got all the superpowers, you know. That's great. You know, sweet to her dad, goes to bed on time, you know, all the good stuff.
1: (laughs) No, I'm a, no, no alter ego. I, I try to... This is a funny thing because one of my biggest philosophies in life, not work-life balance, but work-life integration and trying to be as authentic as you are in your personal life, in your public life, in your work life, which can sometimes be fucking difficult. But to be honest, it's, it's much more enjoyable for me. I really enjoy putting all of myself and all of my creativity and all of my business savvy into kind of everything I do. And so I'm Jason Reichel. That's what I try to be. Jason Reich
0: like Michael, but with an R. So I I was like, thank you for the pronunciation. That's so good. We didn't know each other before the podcast. So sometimes I do know folks before the podcast. If y'all are at this point, you're like, what is the podcast all about? Then just go look at Jason's LinkedIn profile and everything he just said will be verified. That was my first impression. I looked at it and I was like, look at this. And I read through, like I saw like the background on some of the organizations and things like that. And like, again, I won't ruin it. I just, like we'll, we'll hear it in his own words shortly, but go check it out and then just see if you don't agree with everything he just said as, as far as work-life integration and, and, and authenticity perhaps. All right. So we did this last time. I liked it and you agreed so we can flip the script a little bit. Let's do some rapid fire questions. And this will be, you know, th- mostly business oriented. We'll come back into the personal pieces, but feel free to flip back. And Sounds forth, good. Work life integration. Biggest challenge last six months.
1: Well, the biggest challenge in the last six months is I started as a CRO at a Series A organization called TrustLayer. And TrustLayer is a very interesting company in what they're trying to do in the commercial insurance space, which I'm not going to, we can talk about that in a bit. But what was interesting about it is I spent the last six years of my career working with very large organizations like Twilio and Zendesk and Coursera at my own company, GoNimbly, which I, I founded and was the CEO of and popularized the term revenue operations, which is a, a new form of basically how operations works at, at SaaS companies. And the those philosophies, those those workflows worked in those large organizations. And I was very interested to take all of that learning that I had done and built out on around RevOps and take it to a series A company and see does revenue operations, does having a, a full-scale look and de-siloing of an organization impact early-stage companies? Do they move faster? Can they grow faster? Can they overcome problems that you know, companies have later in their trajectory? And so the last six months was putting that to the test, you know, rolling up my sleeves and getting into the dirt, so to speak. And not, you know, working with companies who have unlimited budget. You know, if you work with the Zendesks and Twilios of the world, they have a lot of money and they can put a lot of money in solving these problems. If you work in a a Series A company, you are operating in a different environment. And that was a very exciting thing and challenging thing to try to tackle. That's interesting.
0: Well, let me back up a minute then because I'm ruining the rapid fire already, as you can see, but it's, it's, it's what it's all about. So when you're talking about revenue operations being like a newer term, enablement's a bit of a newer, like, I mean, just it's more progressive position. You'll find it in hyper-growth SaaS a lot more than other places, for example. But with, because RevOps, I'm like, yeah, RevOps, RevOps. Like, it feels like that's been around for a long time, but like there, there is a version of RevOps that's a little bit different that, that you've, you know, been putting your mind towards the last Yeah, year. so
1: Go Nimbly was the first... Six years ago, we coined the term revenue operations or full scale business stack. And the idea was around sales ops, marketing ops, CS ops, all coming into one and being a unified operations team and servicing the needs of the buyer over the needs of the organization. So, you know, a lot of sales ops people think that the sales team, as an example, are their customer. In reality, everyone is working for our revenue and every buying experience has gaps in them. And what GoNimbly did is we t- taught teams how to prioritize your operational work based on the gaps that customers are experiencing, thus increasing your LTV. And that has been very successful. And I think over 45% of companies and B2B SaaS now have a revenue operations team and have moved away from sales operations, marketing ops, and so to speak in the last six years. And it's really been over the last two years that companies have really made this change. So it felt like for the first four years, I was yelling into the darkness and then suddenly some lights came on. And then that's when I started doing all these speaking engagements and panels and podcasts and all this kind of stuff around revenue operations and started to build the frameworks that are now implemented at many organizations. And I, and, you know, to be quite honest, I want to write a field manual for organizations from startup to, to success. And so that was part of this core idea of moving the trust layer and understanding what works and what doesn't work at each stage of a company firsthand.
0: That's interesting. That's interesting. So you're like running your own experiment right now based on what had worked with more enterprise grade customers or like companies and then just being it. Was there a pain point that you're trying to overcome? Like, like why? I I know you mentioned from an economic standpoint like budgetary standpoint like you're not going to have as much budget in a series A obviously not necessarily bootstrap but like not 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 massively funded so then so is there something that like you're trying to get down to a more basic level are you trying to slide in before problems start so you're not having to
1: unravel right the problem? you're you're hitting right. at the nail on the head the hypothesis was when i looked at what customers were spending to do a conversion say when they were series d or trying to ipo into a revenue operations team it could be in the tune of you know 2 to $3 million just on trying to do that transformation internally, hiring the right people, diversifying and, and bringing skill sets up. And that all starts at decisions that were made in the tech stack and the strategy from day one. And so what the hypothesis was is can a company save that money from being smart in the very beginning? Because one thing that companies often do in a startup phase, which I think we all have experienced if you work in, in SaaS, is good enough and I believe it's not good enough. It's the right size fit for the inflection point that you are. So, yeah, a Series A company doesn't need the operations of a company about to IPO, but it's not good enough. It's do we have the correct operational standards for where we are knowing that in a Series A company by the time you get further along in this path and you're, you know, you're doing 20, 30 million dollars of revenue, you're gonna be a very different company. SaaS companies go through very many different changes. Mm-hmm. And technically, I think, having worked in different organizations at different inflection points, they're they're different companies, even if they're selling the same product or an expanded version of that product. And so it it's really understanding what does operational excellence look like when you have a 30 person team? And then what does operational excellence look like when you have a 300 person team? it's very different. And the buyers are different based on those kinds of uh, organizations. So that was really what I, what I thought w- would be interesting is, can you go in and from moment one, show that there is operational excellence to be had in every inflection point of a business? And two, can a CRO, because again, my background was, uh, I was product management. I was a, he- I, a CEO. I was a salesperson. But mostly I believed in all of these functions as an operational-minded person. The CRO and historically in SaaS has come from a sales, peer sales background. And, and a lot of times this is changing, but we're more like VP salespeople who only kind of focus on sales. And my background is in advertising and marketing. And so I really believe that CROs should own both sales, marketing, and customer success, all three of those parts of the organization that touched the buyer journey, right? And so I wanted to see what does an operational CRO look like? What does it mean? What What does an operational CRO who cares about excellence and process look at like at a Series A company? Of course, what TrustLayer and what I've implemented as process might get laughed at at Salesforce.com, right? Because the processes need to be very different. We need very flexible processes at TrustLayer. And Salesforce needs very rigid processes at where they are at, but we both have processes. We both have the operational recipes that are going to make us successful.
0: Okay. Yeah. Comment to that is that in these more progressive organizations like Postman, for example, Postman's pure product led growth. So they were, they were doing extremely well with like, it was maybe like 12 million developers used the platform when I came on board. and. They were going to launch an enterprise motion that enterprise motion didn't even exist. And they were already in this massive ascent on on just the self-service. So I was hired by the leader of customer success. And then two months after I was hired, brought in leaders for sales, customer success and solution engineering under the customer success umbrella. And it's only more recently that sales has moved out of that customer success umbrella at Mm -hmm. all. So like very similar structure
1: and experience to. Two organizations that I worked within and helped them operationally set up, which was PagerDuty and Twilio, both of those organizations were developer-led organizations that had huge user bases before they ever even created a sales motion. As they wanted to go up into the more enterprise and make sure that they were actually getting account penetration, they had to build a sales team and a marketing team and all of those types of things. But for a foreseeable part of that company's history, it was developer-led, it was enablement, it was documentation that was really driving the use case and allowed that organization to to grow. I think, you know, I can't name numbers here, but like PagerDuty's biggest cu- customer was Uber, and they had never really talked to Uber until it was a massive organization, right? And because some developer signed up for PagerDuty to do uh, text alerts way back when Uber was, you know, in its infancy. So those kind of stories and those kind of go-to-market stories, as I like to call them, are very interesting. But to me, they're all the same. That is sales and marketing. That is customer success because I actually believe that in the future, these roles are going to collapse. They're, they're, they're the 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 functional layer that separates sales and marketing and marketing and customer success are eradicating at a very rapid pace. And in 20 years, you won't be able to get a job as a salesperson if you don't know how to write copy. You won't know how to You won't get a job as a CS person if you don't know how to upsell and cross-sell to your existing customers. And so all of these kind of gaps, these these chasms are being bridged now with smart processes and and generalist-minded people. Interesting.
0: It is interesting because there, there are challenges that I'm experiencing now as an enablement leader that I've never seen before. Because it's just like, where does the customer like you're looking at it from customer journey perspective, which is the best you can ever do. But you're like, where do people fit so I can tell them where alignment would be and handoffs would be. And it's just not a top down sales motion. So it doesn't just start here with marketing and move to a business development team and move to sales and move to CS. It's not clean, but it's so much more. It just works better, though. So you're like, yeah, what do you do? It's a little messy underneath, but like it's and then we, we've hired people in. I call them the pager duty mafia because it's like, yeah. because they come from these certain kinds of companies and they understand that process of at least what it looked like in a more similar way. And it's super valuable to be like, okay, so how did this look for the last four years for you? Great. Cause we're about to go through it here. And then we have another layer of leadership who's come on from GitHub and postman the API of, Git, I mean, GitHub, the, what, what are we calling it? Just like the GitHub of APIs is essentially kind of like what they're, yeah. what they're thinking of it in that framework w- with Go Nimbly. Did you did you do this from a
1: services standpoint? Did you come in and consult to these companies? It was at the Yeah. Go Nimbly is a consultancy. So before Go Nimbly, I worked in SaaS as a product manager. And I saw that the best products were great, but kind of didn't go anywhere without a very strong go-to-market team. And I had worked in the past previous to being a product manager in sales and marketing and customer success. And so I thought, hey, we can probably operationalize and package up and tell organizations where to look based on their inflection point. That was that was the premise. It was called Unified Business Stack. That is what, before it was RevOps, that's what I called it. And the Unified Business Stack idea was then taken to organizations and behind the scenes GoNimbly had built different pieces of software that allowed us to consult more like a subscription model. So we were a subscription agency and really helped them transform that organization into, into their own RevOps team. So sometimes we augmented, sometimes we consulted, sometimes it was just identifying gaps in their process, all sorts of different use cases, more like a full-scale agency model. And we thought of ourselves as partnered with those agencies for, for the long-term. And, and as far as consulting goes, the customers tended to stay with our organization much longer than traditional consulting models because we were powered by, by technology and that background in SaaS. And then on top of that, we were kind of leading in, in the forefront of what revenue operations could look like and what it actually meant. You know, Through that experience, you know, I think there's numbers are published now, not just from GoNimbly, but you could see that by implementing revenue operations, by really focusing on GTM as a craft, You could increase with not people, not SDRs, but just with the quality of improving the buyer journey, you could improve the dollars that you would get by somewhere between 10 and 36%. So having these different teams all segmented actually meant that somehow in the buyer journey, the customer was experiencing gaps and losing faith in your organization. And revenue operations, whole entire goal is to fill in those gaps. Hopefully it makes life internally better, but if it doesn't, that's Okay. But they fill in those gaps for those customers, so that customer is willing to sign a longer contract, go out on a limb and bring your software across its, you know, the entire organization, willing to refer you, willing to do all of these things that are actually really important. Post, I hate to say post because I don't think we're post COVID, but post COVID, where you know we don't have the same methods working anymore. You know, you can't just number dial enough people and catch them in their office and sell your SaaS product. We need yeah. much more sophisticated mechanisms to actually win customers and then expand customers. I think, you know, one of the two things I said very early on when I started Go Nimbly is the two most untapped revenue sources for a SaaS company are its revenue operations team, so the people that are actually connecting things, and its service team. You know, its CS team is the untapped thing, and I really believe that the value differentiator between products in the next 10 years is going to be those two factors. So if you have two softwares that have similar features, the one that's going to win is the one that's gonna have a better RevOps team and a better CS team, because those are value differentiators that customers actually experience. And we've moved into the age of experience. Features are okay, but what's the experience that the person's having? How much political capital in an uncertain time are they gonna have to put out to buy your product? And the answer should be next to zero right? That should be the answer. That should be the goal of every organization to get that to zero. You know, the idea of who's my champion now champion us internally is a false premise, right? Because you should turn that organization and everyone in that structure into your champion. And I think that you do that through smart operations and CS. That's interesting. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like it's like many of the things I've
0: experienced in just the, the past two years in particular, when you're when you're bringing this to larger organizations, like a Twilio, like a PagerDuty, like a Coursera, what is different in your day-to-day CR role, like your role right now? Like you, you're a chief revenue officer, you're at a Series A company, you're kind of testing these things internally. So like the end number is obviously one at this point, but your, your duties are probably expanded across, like you mentioned a big deal recently, et cetera, things like that. So yeah. like what, how, how is it really different?
1: Well, in a Series A, I'm involved in a lot more, a lot more people management, a lot more, a lot more interpersonal management. You know, the the kind of people who work at a, a startup in a Series A are sort of different kinds of people that work at a pre, a pre-IPO tech company, right? They're different. They're a different breed, both good and bad, right? So you're working with sometimes a lot more egos. Sometimes you're working with people who in a Series A company, very committed to the things that have gotten them there, right? Because every step in that first two-year period from seed to, you know, the endpoint of Series A is a grind. It's very difficult. And, you know, if a process worked, they're very hesitant to let go of that process. Whereas when you work on an enterprise, if you say, hey, that worked six months ago, but it's no longer working, they're much more quick to change pro not not much more quick to implement process but much more quick to hear maybe there's a better way of doing this because they have been so used they're so conditioned to change at an enterprise organization an enterprise organization a saas organization that they don't have the 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 connection to the process as it used to be 3 months ago because you know 3 months ago in startup land you know feels like a lifetime for some of those individuals working it, you know, and so I think those are kind of the key difference. You have to realize that there's a lot more emotionality in a series A organization than there is in an enterprise SaaS company. At the same time, if you can gain trust, and you can position your solutions as smart, and they see value in it, change management is like that, right? So, mm-hmm. Once you get past that emotional hurdle, they'll implement it. And if it works, they'll drive it. Whereas that's always the hurdle from an implementation or an enablement perspective of, around process at an enterprise, which is the organization understands the strategy change. Now, good luck trying to implement that strategy change. That's going to be harder because there's just so many voices, so many different styles to communicate to. Whereas on the, the Series A side, the first time that a method brings in a big deal that seemed out of reach in the past... Now everybody's like, how do I use that method in order to be successful? And I like that aspect of it. I enjoy working as a, as a person, as an executive in organizations that are, are, are more in the, in the startup space. I enjoy the startup space more because I find it to be more challenging to convince these people. But then once you do, everybody kind of points towards that North Star and then executes against it, which is super exciting and rewarding. That's very interesting. What I'm hearing is like series A, the commitment
0: is so high, but, and it's like, and it has pros and cons, like a commitment to like an emotional commitment to the company, as well as a commitment to processes that have worked in the, and then enterprises, which people are very, pretty aware of this. Like if you are a new organization every six months for the last six years, like you're like, okay, so this is coming in. So these things are going to swap. Like you've seen enough new things come in, change things for the better, but. The implement.
1: And you're, you know, you're not turning the dial from one to two, you're, you're, uh, you know, micro adjusting dials usually in the enterprise, right? I think RevOps for the enterprise was hard to transition to because it was clicking from seven to 11, right? And that that was a big thing. And I think that's why GoNimbly was so successful as a consultancy working with these companies is because they actually needed help transforming. They didn't know how to do it on their own. But most enterprise operations or CRO responsibilities are are more dialing up or down by a few clicks, not, not a significant transformational change.
0: Let me ask you about this because this is SaaS Rent Podcast. You are at a SaaS company now, but you just came from a very successful services-based company. Like, do Mm -hmm. you have an opinion about where services versus SaaS makes sense? Because there's places where, like, you can give the pure customization. Like, this company is different than this company is different than this company. We're hearing you. We're human beings. We're taking in the data. We're using this large, unscalable brain in our heads. But, like, you know, very, like, human-centric and trying to understand what you're saying.
1: I come from a product management background, and and I was – or a product for a, a unicorn company called TradeShift, trade shift. And what I believe is that servicing can be turned into a product that is not bespoke. So go nimbly when, when I ran it, I worked very diligently to try to create products, not bespoke servicing. I don't like bespoke servicing and I don't think it's just my Silicon Valley inside of me. I think uh-huh. that I think what happens is customers get very different experiences when they use consulting based on who's on their team. And I always wanted that who's on your team to be the icing on the cake and I wanted the the loyalty and the ideas to be baked into the product, right? And so my experience with with consulting and I've been a pure consultant before Go Nimbly as well before I was ever in SaaS is that um you can only make as much money in consulting as your time allows you to make and your brain allows you to make. Now, obviously, there's people who do online courses and all that kind of stuff, which is obviously it allows it. But I'm talking about pure solutioning. But if you're able to build a product like we were, where we looked at operational projects across different inflection points, and I would get that data and analyze it, I could see what projects were... Actually, pushing an organization towards success, and which ones, which I would call vanity projects, which are, you know, some head of marketing wants us to do XYZ because they think they should do it, not because it's going to be beneficial to the revenue. And over time, was able to build very specific ideas about what should happen at each stage. And that, I think, is how you productize that bespoke model. So, yeah, very early on, it was completely bespoke, but over time, you were able to train a baseline thing like, Every organization needs to implement X, Y, Z. They need to do this thing. They need to have their system set up in this w- this way in order to take advantage of conversational marketing on their website. Whatever those things might be, they were there was a strategy tied to it. And as soon as you tie strategy to consulting, you can actually prioritize servicing. And I would mm. urge every SaaS company to also think of their service team as a product. And I do believe that in these uncertain times, Having a strong service component as part of your core product is a huge value differential and also necessary when there is so much change happening, both because we might be entering into a recession in SaaS, but all secondarily, it's also happening because the buyer, a buyer is changing. And so you really need that, that touch that a service team can provide or an AM Team could provide to your customers in order to guarantee churn and, and upsell. Right. And so I, I really believe that, again, services are widely neglected because it didn't look good when you went to go raise an evaluation if it wasn't considered a part of your subscription price. My favorite thing to do wow. is to figure out my servicing cost and incorporate it into my product cost. Thus, it's part of my subscription model and how I have solve this problem or have worked on solving this problem in different organizations I've been in, which is just make it part of the product cost because then you can really look at that. And if a customer needs a lot of servicing in the beginning, you're covered. And then over time that just becomes pure, pure profit to the SaaS organization versus one-time fees and all these other kinds of things where basically SaaS companies are saying, hey, my implementation team is a joke, right? That, I mean, that's something that they're saying when they're doing that. Oh, that's just a negotiation tactic so we can take it off the, the implementation cost or the servicing, the, the bespoke servicing or the white glove servicing. That's just there so we can mark it off so you think you're getting a discount. This is, goes back to one of the things I said earlier about authenticity is like, I believe that you should operate as a CRO as a doctor. If you don't believe that customers need your product, in order to be successful, you're at the wrong organization, right? That's the first, that's the first yeah. thing I believe. The second thing I believe is what your job is is to educate customers on why your product is valuable to them and will solve their pains. And if they choose to walk away because of price or because of whatever, they will come back the same way that they would come back to a good doctor who gave them that opinion in the first place. And so I very much like being straightforward about what's going to make the customer the, the most successful version that they could be. And I think that over time, that builds a culture of of a value-added culture across every department.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I like that. And it it enables you to kind of go strongly. Like I I had to get behind products that I liked because I knew I didn't, I'm a former teacher, let's say high school biology teacher, soccer coach. I did not have like the sales chops that some of these people did, especially at the age that I transitioned. And then, and so I came in, I was like, Hey, I don't understand that. So I'm going to have to tell the truth. Can you tell me three true things that are excellent about this product? I will make 100 phone calls. Like, that's right. kind of how it started because, like, you just wouldn't. There's, yeah, there's no way to
1: get around that, that authenticity. But I mean, I think is, is, you're a perfect example. If you just take the, a soccer example, you know how to incrementally improve your game and you know about how to coach craft. Thus, you were able to make a transition that a lot of people, even if they went to school and they are, say, a great developer on a development team, if they are not focused on their craft and knowing how to coach themselves, they will not be able to make hard transitions between inflection points of an organization. And one question I, I commonly get, and, and you know, this is something that maybe I'll talk about on, on my live show that I'm doing, which is Wake Up GTM, Tuesdays and Thursdays at 9.35. This is the plug. 9.35 PST time. On LinkedIn Let's It is down. Tuesdays and Thursdays and Thursdays 935. at 935 AM for 25 Pacific. minutes on LinkedIn. Yeah, I'll definitely be on that. But them. one of the Maybe things that, that I'm a big fan of is inflection point transitions. What kind of individuals are able to go from a series A to a series B to a series C to a series in that same company? And it all comes down to, can you coach yourself? Do you understand your craft? And are you committed to becoming better and changing as rapidly as the organization needs you to? And it really does come down to some fundamental things. And one of them being like your background that you just mentioned.
0: I would love to ask you about that. Like, because it's, it's, I'm watching it happen. It's really interesting. I'm in a company that's ever, that's changing every six months. This is the second one I've been at. that has been exactly like that, except Mm -hmm. for just different motions, PLG versus top down. So can You gave a really good synopsis of what Series A looks and feels like. At Sastronaut Podcast, one of the things we're trying to do is understand all the challenges between product adoption and validated go-to-market motion, like enterprise motion. Like that can happen between many of these funding rounds that are kind of like marking, you call them inflection points. Um, And so like, do you have something in mind for like seed A, B, C, D? Is there something that like you have a mental model for that you could lay out? Yeah.
1: Yeah, so Series A is about going from bespoke, which is usually your first million dollars of revenue, you're bespoke. I mean, whatever worked, whatever size customers you could get in, whatever industries are interested in your product, even if you are targeting a specific industry. And when you then get to that million dollar mark, you raise your Series A. And when you raise your Series A, it's about proving that there is a repeatable go-to-market process. And repeatable doesn't mean sometimes getting to a certain dollar amount although a lot of companies try to get to a you know a 3 to f- 2.5 to 5 million dollar mark before they raise their series b but it's about if i how much dollars do i need to put in to create a pipeline how many dollars do i need to put in to convert to a win how many dollars do i need to put in in order to have a customer implement it cuz you know you're probably not going to have many cohorts that can tell you what your churn rate is so cs usually in a series a company a ragtag group of people, right? And they're, they are handling different situations all the time because you haven't really solidified on what it does a successful customer look like because you're just starting to deal with your customers. But what you have proven by the time you get to series A is how do people want to buy this product? Or maybe you're figuring that out. And So in series A, it's all about that repeatable marketing and, and really not marketing, repeatable sales process. Series B to me, it's all about how do we create a flywheel in marketing in order to meet the demands of growth that are required of a high velocity startup? And when you move into that realm, who, who marketing us, is that, is, Say again? is that, is the requirement coming
0: from like the, the funding? They're like, hey, here is. million, $50 million, but here is the double headcount, double revenue kind of. I mean,
1: I think that people wish that the boards were as clear as that boards are not. You know, one of the things that I did is work very closely with VCs, So I I got a firsthand understanding of what VCs are looking at for at different inflection points. But what you actually find is not necessarily what it takes to raise money because VCs will give you money for a larger percentage as a company, but what's actually going to result in a higher valuation for you, which then protects your ownership of the company, right? And I'm talking specifically to CEOs right now, right? Who are founders of organizations, which is you wanna protect your equity. The way you protect your equity is get the best valuation. There are certain recipes that you should focus on at each of those stages in order to get the best valuation, regardless of what your board is asking you to do. Like your board might come in at a Series A company and say, hey, we have to do PLG. Because PLG is hot and it's a good idea, 100% good idea, you probably can't do PLG because you don't have the user base that that would be a huge change in your revenue structure. It would be a lot of development, a lot of focus in order to get maybe a 5 to 15% upsell from your product. And you already have to be in a trial mode. So that basically excludes Series A Enterprise software because Series A – enterprise software very rarely can be sold trial to conversion because the product is usually not mature enough to sell it at that at that at that phase. So all of these kind of recipes exist for what I would call is the most optimal outcome which is keeping your equity and really dialing up what the valuation will be at each stage. Now obviously revenue speaks a lot, but revenue without a process leads to a distrust and a lack of confidence in your startup by your board members or other VCs that you might want to bring in. So I found that by having your operational processes tied down and showing that you know exactly how you're getting the gains that you're getting, it is it adds a lot of trust to those kind of conversations to your board conversations to to the VCs that you're trying to to speak to. So that that's my advice is like you need to be focused on those things. That is to me a CEO's job to be focused on those things. What your team needs to be focused on is the buyer journey. How are we gonna improve the buyer journey? But how you make that decision on what we're focused on what we're prioritizing over one thing, because let's say two, you have two gaps in your buyer journey. One is $3 and the other one's $3. Which one are you gonna do? You're gonna do the one that helps your valuation the best. So that's the job of the CEO to sort of manage and understand, do we fix this in product or do we fix this in servicing or do we fix this in marketing or do we fix this where? And those kind of decisions are our leadership decisions. And those are the decisions that I enjoy making as a CRO, right? Th- those are the sort of strategy decisions that I enjoy making. How are we going to move to where we need to be to protect our valuation and make sure that the people who are working in the startup, which is always my first concern, the people working in the startup get the best outcome because they're doing the work. I think VCs do a very beautiful thing by giving SaaS companies money, but it's, it's business, right? The people that are working in the startup, it's personal. Even if they want huge outcomes for themselves because they would like to be rich or they would like to have a, you know, the TechCrunch write an article about their company and know that they were one of the first 50 employees, really it's personal for them because they've they are working in the trenches of that organization and for VCs it's not. And so I always think about the per- the person I want to protect is the person who's emotionally invested in the organization.
0: Yeah. This is interesting. This is like a, this is, by the way, I have asked one question that's on a little list of questions, you know, and we've just like had a good time. (laughs) What I've enjoyed is like, (laughs) we knew this would happen, kindred spirits. (laughs) So uh, you are at a small organization, you've had your own organization and you've worked with very large organizations all within this like SaaS hyper growth type space. So I, I have found that like certain guests who have experienced large and small one that comes to mind in particular is Sarika Guard. She's at Cashflow. That's a, that's a Series A company, and she had previously worked at SAP. So she's like, I saw this. We're here now. And like this, this chasm in between. Her and I know, worked together at a trade a shift. Team.
1: Oh, no kidding. Oh, yeah, man. so she, she was brought in on the marketing end, and I was a director of a product around the same time. So I know Sarika well.
0: Okay. Awesome. This is probably LinkedIn is probably like doing this thing where, like, where we connected and it just knows that yeah. we both knew the same person. I bet. Yeah. Good job, LinkedIn. But yeah, I mean, hundred um, percent, you know, that's one of the 100%. things she was brought
1: in at, uh, when she was brought in for trade shift is she had that experience at a large organization and they were in hyper growth and they wanted to, you know, set themselves up successfully to reach those outcomes. Now I'm not a big believer that the thing you should do for your startup is go, can, are we allowed to curse on this? I don't think sometimes that you should go out there and star mingle. I won't say the other word, but star mingle with everyone that's in another organization because, you know, some people, not Serica, but some people come in from big organizations and they bring their bad habits to a, you know, and you hear this all the time. If you hang out with SaaS founders, they're like, I hired this guy. He doesn't want to make the phone calls. Yeah. Cause you hired an uh, enterprise AE from a, you know, a hundred million dollar company and they're not used to that. And they didn't expect that. And you weren't clear about that when they came in, that they were going to take that role because half of them would say no and the other half would be like, that's exactly what I'm looking for. So I think that's a, you know, a problem when we star mingle, which is, you know, I want to be like X company. Well, a lot of times in SaaS, and this is what, true with a lot of organizations I've consulted with, you're actually trying to disrupt the very companies that you're hiring people from. So maybe you should rethink that hiring strategy as your only primary strategy. But I do believe there is a group of frustrated people at companies that have been successful who are looking to fix the errors that their successful companies made because they actually believe that the company could even be more successful or have moved faster. And those are the people that you want to hire. You want to hire those people who have had that experience, but who were not satisfied by that experience. I am a big believer in hiring people who were not satisfied with their previous jobs. If you hire someone who's like, every job I've ever had is bliss and they can't talk to how they would have changed those organizations, to me, they don't have the entrepreneurial experience to work at a seed series A or series B organization because those people need to be bred to be unsatisfied. And I think that's a, a core thing that I don't think you can teach, but that's a thing I look for in the interview processes, which is, and this is a thing that also people are coached to not talk about, which is you shouldn't talk shit right. about the organizations you worked at in the past, but Big for no me, no, no. I'm not right. asking you to to speak ill of the organization, I'm asking you, how could that organization move faster? And when you ask some people that who have worked at a company like Twilio, as an example, they have no answer for it because they could barely hold on to how fast Twilio was growing. And those are the people right. you don't want to bring into your startup. Right. And, yeah. and so that, that's a advice around hiring that I would recommend to most people.
0: Okay. It's interesting. So you're looking for ownership. I mean, that's that ultimately that seems to result in ownership. Like what would you 100% have done? That means they thought about it because they wanted to own it, whether they could or couldn't, and maybe they couldn't. And maybe that's why they were looking or why the fit makes sense. I have, I have, there's a lot of rabbit holes over here. I would love to continue, I, but I, I, dude, we blew past time, blew past it. And I still want to come back and, and like, will you tell a little bit about, we talked about it just before, you're going to do a new thing. And then what are you doing and then
1: why? Like give that little backstory on what this is. Sure. Cool. So I'm doing something called Wake Up GTM. It's my version of the morning zoo crew, LinkedIn kind of thing. So I'm going to get a cup of coffee. I'm going to sit down and, and answer people's questions either live or via a GTM hotline that I've been running for two years. So when I started doing podcasts and lectures and things like that, people would have questions. I would be in the back answering the questions. But I felt like I wanted to do more. So I started giving a phone number at the end of different podcasts I was on and people started texting me at that phone number. And when I was Thursday night after dinner, I'm sitting there, my kid's in bed, I would start having correspondence with these people. I like to think of it as a a GTM pen pal situation. And over time, I've amassed around 300 of these questions that are still applicable and need to be answered in the most broad strokes, kind of like this rapid fire Thing that you did, which led us to all all these interesting counterpoints. So, what I decided to do is, hey, let's do a morning show two days a week, and answer those questions. And if I don't know the answers, let's let me bring in a guest who does. So, instead of a podcast, and what I really appreciate about this is, yeah, we could have talked about where I come from and my career and all of that, which is important. People need to do that, but more important, let's just get into the let's just get let's just wake up. Let's just focus on what's important, right? And that and that is the core concept of of the show and going into a series A company I kind of took a back seat for the last 6 months and giving back to the community which I very much value because they've taught me everything I know and I have a lot to teach the, the the younger generation and so I decided that this would be a good opportunity now that I kind of have my sea legs at Trustlayer to move back into helping helping people and answering questions I love podcasts and I, but what I've really been into lately is yeah YouTube quick answer things. So I love watching the things that Y Combinator have put out, which are like two minutes, three minute little chunks that are interesting, that get your brain going and thinking throughout the day. And I know one of my philosophies, we talk about worth, like integration is I actually do, I've done and helped other entrepreneurs was something that I call the eighth day methodology, which is how do we get better without adding an extra day to our week? We only have seven days in the week. We're all busy all seven days. So how do you actually work on your craft in your existing circumstance? And for me, it is on Tuesdays and Thursdays, I sit down and ask myself a question and I usually write an essay out about what that answer is. And that Hmm. gets my brain moving so fast and so awake that then I'm seeing all of the opportunities in my work life and other places to work on that craft. And so I want to bring that to people in the form of this, you know, 25 minute check-in where we make some jokes and we answer some questions, but hopefully it's a, it's a ideation starter for what you're looking for and what you want to work on.
0: Red, red, Okay. That is, that is super cool. Yeah. You can hit it in LinkedIn. It pulls it into your calendar if you're integrated and stuff like that. And, I am free for 20 of the 25 minutes I happen to notice in my calendar over here. Great. So like, I will be there. Yeah, it's fantastic. Yeah, thanks, Jason. Dude, this, this has been so, so good. We're super far past. It's got so many good nuggets and I can't wait yeah. to, to do it again, probably in six months when you're at a trust layer and it's yet a different company again. Yes. And we can talk about the, 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 what's happening with the flywheel in series B at that point or something like that.
1: Uh, I, I, I think we Killer. should change your name from Pete Podcast to Pete Good Guy
0: thornton oh my no listen listen give me a good guy thornton give me some of those sweet emojis like you have in your uh, linkedin profile like your banner back yeah. there i'm like this is the best looking thing i've ever seen yeah it's the, thank you it's a, yeah. it's a kind of a fast thing to do but i never see it i don't see it out there very much like we're a little serious
1: yeah. out here maybe so yeah a little yeah, serious awesome we don't need to be that serious this is we are lucky to have the jobs we have no time in human history has it been more enjoyable to work than it is right now so count your lucky stars completely yeah and
0: from your guest bedroom or wherever it is you find yourself right now like (laughs) yeah right back (laughs) all right man
1: thank you